Pardes North America presents Greatest Hits, The High Holidays, a curated collection of premium high holiday content from the Pardes archives. We hope it brings additional meaning to your Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur experience. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. For more high holiday learning opportunities, visit pardes.org.il forward slash events. And now, Greatest Hits, The High Holidays. Yom Kippur is one of the most awesome days on the Jewish calendar. It is a day of fasting and self-affliction. It is a day of reflection and introspection. It is a day of teshuva and forgiveness. At the Mincha service of Yom Kippur Day, we read the curious and cryptic account of Jonah. Sefer Yonah, the book of Jonah, is a slim volume comprising a short four chapters, part of a larger series of books that together constitute Treasar, or the Twelve Minor Prophets. The book describes the mission of Jonah sent by God to the city of Nineveh in order to restore its people through Tshuva. Jonah is very reluctant to undertake the mission and instead attempts to flee to Tarshish. Going to Yafo, to Jaffa, he boards a boat, hoping to escape westwards while Nineveh is eastwards, but a storm soon arises and threatens to engulf the ship. The sailors, panicked and anxious, cry out to their gods, throw things overboard, in order to lighten the load, while Yonah descends to the depths of the ship and falls into a deep slumber. Rav HaChovel, the captain, approaches him and cries out, Malachanirdam, why are you asleep? How can you be sleeping at a time like this? Arise and cry out to your God, so that we will not be lost. Lots are cast, and Jonah is found to be accountable. The sailors inquire as to why the storm has arisen on his behalf, and he explains to them that he has fled God's presence. In the meantime, the sea continues to threaten the ship, and the sailors turn to Jonah and say, what can we do in order to quiet the sea? Jonah says, toss me overboard, because the storm is on my account. Nobly, the the sailors attempt to row back to shore, but to no avail, crying out to God and expressing their blamelessness. They reluctantly cast him overboard, and the sea calms. The sailors are very impressed by God's intervention. They offer sacrifice, and they make vows. Yonah unwittingly has brought them to a place of repentance. In the next part of the story, Yonah is swallowed by a great fish, and in its belly he remains for three days and three nights. Yonah prays from the belly of the fish to his God, and in words reminiscent of many passages in the book of Tehillim, or Psalms, he describes the feelings of being drowned, overwhelmed by the waters, that threaten to kill him, driven out of God's presence, 
brought down to the depths of the seas and rescued by God after having called to him. When my soul was faint, I cried out to God and I remembered him. My prayer has come to you, to your holy habitation, the temple. God commands the fish to spit out Jonah on dry land. And with this, the first half of the book is completed. If we were to summarize the first half and its contents, we might say, this is the story of a reluctant prophet who refuses to carry out his mission. It is the story of divine intervention in the guise of the storm and the great fish. It is the account of Yonah's interaction with a non-Israelite pagan group of people who in the end turn to God and embrace him even as Jonah refuses to do so. These events are mirrored in the second half of the story. Once again, God calls upon Jonah to go to Nineveh and to cry out against it such that its people will repent. This time Jonah relents. He goes to Nineveh, the great city, so large that it takes three days to cross it, and as he enters the city, he cries out to it, in 40 more days, Ninveh will be overturned. Immediately, the people of Ninveh believe in God. They call a public fast. They don sackcloth. The king himself arises from his throne, removes his mantle, and puts on sackcloth after the manner of mourning and repentance. He issues a decree that man and beast, cattle and sheep, are to refrain from eating anything and not to drink as well. They are to cover themselves with sackcloth and cry out to God mightily, to each one turn from his evil ways and from the violence that he has perpetrated, such that God might see, might change his mind, and turn from his harsh anger, such that the city will not be lost. And so it was, the people of Nineveh repent with great gusto, and God sees their deeds, kishavu midarkam hara'ah, that they have indeed turned from their evil ways. God changes his mind concerning the evil that he thought to bring upon them, and he does not do so. This turn of events disturbs Jonah very much. Praying to God once again, this time Jonah says, this is exactly what I thought would happen while I was yet in my own land and that's why I decided to flee to Tarshish Kiadati because I knew that you are a God of mercy and compassion, a patient and long-suffering God who turns from bringing evil. Take my life, says Jonah, because I would prefer to die. Jonah leaves the city, sits eastwards of it, prepares himself a temporary shelter in the form of a sukkah and sits in its shade, awaiting what will happen to the city. In the meantime, God causes a kikayon, popularly translated as a castor oil plant, to grow over Jonah's head with its large and luxurious leaves, granting him shade from the heat and the sun. And Yonah was overjoyed 
concerning the Kikayon. But the next morning, early on, God designated a worm that struck the Kikayon so that it dried up. And as the sun rose, God called upon the harsh eastern wind to strike Jonah with its heat, such that Jonah fainted away and asked to die. This introduces what seemingly is the core message of the book. God turned to Jonah and he said, Are you rightfully angry concerning the Kikayon? And Jonah responded, Indeed, I am angry unto death. God said to him, You had compassion on the Kikayon, for which you did not toil, and which you did not cause to grow. A Kikayon that lasted a single night and then was lost. Shall I not have mercy on the people of Nineveh, the great city, that has 120,000 people, that know not between their right hand and their left, as well as many animals? And on this question, the curious book ends. Paralleling the first half, the second half of the book introduces similar motifs. Once again, Jonah comes in contact with a non-Israelite population. They are very enthusiastic to do tshuva, to repent from their evil ways. They don sackcloth, they fast, they cry out to God, they cease from the evil that they had done. And even as they do so, Yonah's reaction, as it was in the first half of the book, is counterintuitive. Rather than Yonah being overjoyed at the development, he is deeply aggrieved and asks God to take his life, much as he asked the sailors to cast him overboard earlier in the story. And just as God called upon the fish to swallow Jonah and then to expel him on dry land, once again God calls upon other things, the castor oil plant, the worm, and the eastern wind to communicate his message to the wayward prophet. One of the primary questions that all of the commentaries deal with, ancient, medieval, and modern, is the nature of Jonah's reluctance to undertake his mission. Why doesn't Jonah want to travel to Nineveh in order to bring repentance so that Nineveh not be destroyed? Certainly, this kind of behavior is out of keeping with the prophetic motif in the Hebrew Bible. In the Tanakh, it is the ultimate goal and wish of the prophet, any prophet, to restore people to God. Most of them, if not all of them, were unsuccessful. Jonah actually emerges from the story as the most successful prophet in the Hebrew Bible. Both the pagan sailors, as well as the people of Nineveh, do tshuva with great alacrity, with great enthusiasm, and with great comprehensiveness. But rather than being overjoyed at his success, Jonah is deeply troubled. In the Midrash, we find a number of approaches to explain Jonah's reluctance and Jonah's disappointment. One possibility reads Jonah as a disgruntled prophet, afraid of being thought of as a charlatan or as a fake. If I go to Nineveh, 
and I pronounce doom, and the people repent, and the doom does not take place, then they will call me, says Jonah, a false prophet. In this curious reading, Jonah's concerns seem to be rather petty and self-centered. It's his own reputation on the line. At the same time, Jonah's fear of being called a false prophet seems rather misplaced. Certainly the role of the prophet is to bring people to repentance. This is often done through a threat of destruction or doom. Clearly it is understood that that threat is only conditional. If the people return to God, then the destruction can be averted. Why would Jonah's seeming lack of success in bringing destruction be the cause for him to be referred to as a false prophet? Another interpretation offered in the Midrash and later picked up by the medieval commentaries focuses our attention not on Jonah, but on the recipients of his message, the people of Nineveh. As it turns out, we know from other places in the Hebrew Bible, especially the second book of Kings, chapter 16 and 17, that the people of Nineveh will play a fateful role in the fortunes of the kingdom of Israel from which Jonah hails. Nineveh is none other than the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which begins its ascendancy and westward march sometime during Jonah's lifetime. The Assyrian Empire, in the end, will overrun the kingdom of Israel, destroy its capital of Samaria, Shamron, and exile its people, the so-called Ten Tribes, to the east, to Mesopotamia, to be lost forever in exile. In this interpretation, Jonah, being a prophet, understands what the future holds. For him to save the people of Nineveh is also to allow that future invasion to take place. For him to save Nineveh from destruction is ultimately to pronounce destruction upon his own people, rather than Jonah being concerned with his personal reputation and his ego, in this reading, Jonah is a patriot concerned with the fate of the people of Israel, his people. He cannot bring himself to save Nineveh from destruction because to do so will condemn his people to destruction at their hands. And this is the meaning of his flight. These two readings, of course, offer us different possibilities into the meaning of the book. And of course, at the end, God makes it clear that neither of these justifications is sufficient, whether it is his personal reputation or even the fate of the people of Israel. The primary message of the book is clear: God's desire is for all people, Israelite and non-Israelite alike, to have an opportunity to do tshuva. God's fervent wish is that we seize that opportunity and change our ways. God wants nothing more than to exercise mercy and compassion, and nothing will stand in the way of that divine desire, not even a reluctant prophet by the name of Jonah. Tiva v'chatima tova. 
Thank you for listening to Pardes North America's greatest hits, The High Holidays. If you like what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Visit pardes.org.il for more ways to learn with us. Thanks for listening.